0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publisher of a book called Wild Game. My mother, her lover, and me. It is the riveting new memoir by Adrian Brodeur, It is also the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is an exceptional family memoir. It's a mother-daughter story. In it, Brodeur introduces us to her mother Malabar, a charismatic narcissist who embroils her daughter in a romantic affair at a young age and essentially takes over her life and herself until, just in the nick of time, I'm not going to spoil it. You should read the book. It's called Wild Game. It is outstanding. It is by Adrian Brodeur. Wild Game. Out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Okay? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm just going to let there be some long pregnant pauses here at the top just to kind of get us settled in. I think everybody needs to settle down a little bit, don't you? <laughs> Jared Kobeck is back on the program. He is here for, what, the third time? Celebrating the publication of a new novel called Only Americans Burn in Hell. It is available from We Heard You Like Books, which is Jared Kobeck's own publishing imprint. He runs his own indie press. So, uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell has already been published to uh, rapturous critical acclaim in the United Kingdom. And this is its uh, North American debut that's happening right now. So, uh, you're going to hear me in conversation with Jarrett Kobeck in just a second. I first met him a few years ago when he published a novel called I Hate the Internet. It, too, was published on his imprint, though at the time, I was not aware of that. I was hoodwinked a little bit. Uh, the book was starting to make uh, make waves. Uh, I want to say a friend of mine or a couple friends of mine started chattering to me about it. I had Jared Kobeck on this program. I think the interview that he did here for that book wound up helping it along a little bit, and then subsequently, it took on a life of its own, and it wound up selling all over the world. It wound up getting reviewed by the New York Times, which is unheard of for a self-published novel. So it was a very rare kind of Halley's Comet experience for Jarrett Kobeck with I Hate the Internet. And it then led to a major book deal and the publication of another novel called The Future Won't Be Long. And it came out from Viking in 2017. I talked to him again when that book uh, dropped, And it did not hit in the way that I hate the internet hit to say the least. So with, uh, only Americans burn in hell, Jarrett Kovac is sort of returning to form a little bit. And, uh, you know, everything that I just outlined, we cover in our conversation and I think it's a useful conversation. And I think the experience that he has had in the business of publishing is illuminating and interesting and, uh, will probably be of interest to a lot of you. It's, it's just a good story period. And he's a great talker and a great thinker and, uh, fun to, you know, fun to have on the show, but you know, this has been quite a ride for him and he is very candid in discussing all of it, which you are going to hear right now. So let's get to that conversation. This is Jarrett Kobeck and his new novel. One more time is called only Americans
1: burn in hell. (laughs) And what ended up happening was that book went from being this thing where there were really modest ambitions to a thing that just got out of my control. Um, In a and, good way. And, you know, it's interesting. There's good chaos and there's bad chaos. It always feels like chaos. And you're always unprepared for it. And I think we're really prepared by society for bad chaos, right? Because we dwell on the ills no one prepares you for good chaos you know uh it's a it's a complicated thing so let me let's talk about good chaos so for people
0: who don't have context like i hate the internet was this book that you published right that you sent
1: out into the world with very modest ambitions and then what happened the ambitions for that book were to sell a couple of thousand copies at most and have enough of a success that i could get picked up for the next book by a major publisher um that happened in about two months maybe less than two months maybe a a month and a half and it ended up sort of infamously i think at this point at least to myself being reviewed by the new york times which is really unusual because the times doesn't review self-published books and this was also part of the ruse where it was like we're going I'm going to pretend that this is the least self-published book I can. And then once the Times reviewed it, I was like, fuck it. Now it's a self-published book. Now everyone can know because it's like, where where can you go from there? But book ended up being translated into I don't know, ten languages published in thirteen countries, and there's more translations coming. Globally it sold about a hundred thousand copies. Um I up until December of 2018, I was still traveling the globe in support of it. The last thing I did was uh, a book fair in Rome, which was really crazy because the publishers, the publisher I have in Italy, who are very good publishers, it was like some kind of weird star treatment where I, I never really got out into Rome very much because they had some BMW chauffeured car thing just (laughs) driving me around what's the fuck yeah and it's stuff like that like it really went from this thing published with incredibly modest ambitions to like now people are running full page articles about you in german newspapers and you know you're i've i've been on television so many times at this point where though like what not in the, well once in the English speaking world. I, I was on um, Channel Four UK News um, in early 2018 or early 2017. They had me on to talk about fake news, and it went disastrously bad because I could just tell that I had been brought in to be the clown. Essentially, so I dressed like a clown. I had like this weird hat on. I'm like wearing this Guns and Roses shirt. And it was all filmed in Burbank at NBC Four, and then it like was a live thing going across. Anyway, it's, it like it turned into me getting into an argument with Venerable Jon Snow, not of <laughs> Game of Thrones, but like he's like a really well-known newscaster. Anyway, like but lots of German television, French television. Uh, a lot of serbian television so like yeah the book did really well in serbia yeah yeah it did it was a bestseller in serbia um and i went to serbia and that was kind of amazing too because because serbia sort of has a pariah state ta- uh reputation it's not part of the eu um and it's like going into a very different kind of Europe than what you get in the the normal countries. And I don't think a lot of American writers go there. So it was treated like a state visit or something. It was really weird. Like, the amount of media was insane. And again, this is all off of a book where, you know, what was the press? What's the press still? It's a bunch of boxes under my bed, you know, and, and...
0: Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When did you, and when again, I think we might've touched on this in in previous interviews, but when did you feel like
1: it hit some sort of tipping point or what was it that broke it out? Uh, there were two things. One is that um, Brett Easton Ellis, I had sent him a copy of the book and he randomly posed with it for a photograph for some French cultural magazine. Cause I think that his complete works were coming out under new trade in France and someone sent it to me um, like who, for whatever reason was reading this magazine, and that was like, well, this is incredibly fucking weird because it's Brett Easton Ellis. Um, and then the second thing was also somewhat infamously, I got heckled by a beatnik at City Lights. For oh me. right, 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 and like mm-hmm. that really helped the book enormously in ways that are just impossible. To understand, just because it got word of mouth going, word of mouth, and it's like you. I mean, you've been to literary events. You go to any literary event, and the reality is that ninety seconds in, you want to leave, right? Like you know what that experience is going to be. So, I think there is a certain cultural. I think I think it's like because that happened, it subverted expectations of what happens at a literary event, and as a result of that, it gave it a kind of um, viral thing and so like it just everything went right now what ended up happening is i very shortly after the new york times reviewed the book i sold a novel to vin- uh vintage viking which is an imprint of penguin random house and then the book came out um in august of 2017 And it was an epic disaster. It was like, it was the fate that should have befallen I Hate the Internet, right? Like it had as much impact as you would imagine a book published by some random weirdo with some boxes under his bed would have. Um, But this was a giant corporation. But this is like (laughs) not just a giant corporation. I mean, it's like... Penguin Random House is the biggest publishing company in the English speaking world. Uh, Viking is an incredibly storied imprint that used to be its own publisher. Um, And some of it was their fault. Some of it was the fault of the book, just not making sense in the moment. Some of it was my fault. It added up to just like a massive commercial failure. Like, massive, particularly relative to the advance they gave me, which wasn't huge, but was not insubstantial. Um, and that left me in a really weird lurch, you know, um, when you have that kind of failure, it's very, very hard to keep having a career, uh, in publishing in particular. So I knew by the, by the, we the not even the week like the day that the book came out i knew it was going to fail why uh again some of it was the context i mean it was published i think 5 days after charlottesville and it's a book about white people doing drugs in the 80s that's a hard sell right you know but penguin did not the best job on it like the cover was terrible it's not the title I would have used and they what title would you have used i wanted to use which ultimately turned out not to be a good decision because someone else had a book very shortly after with a similar title but i wanted it to be called everything is horrible because there's this woman who has a car in louis Feliz, which is like this old old toyota corolla from like 1980 that well maybe not eighty, nineteen the nineteen eighties, that she um that she clearly it's a piece of shit. And then she just let her friends spray paint all over it. And one of them spray painted everything is horrible on it. <laughs> and to me that seemed like that's actually not wrong for that book, because it's a book about people in their late teens and their early twenties up to their thirties which is the time where you reflexively feel like everything is horrible. I also think right? it would be a
0: better uh, a better title because it would uh it would function similarly to I hate the internet. Right. in that it says something that people innately feel very plainly. Right. And I feel like that's part of this I mean I don't mean to be reductive, but I've, I think I told you this last time. I think part of the success of I Hate the Internet oh, I, is that it had this blunt title. Oh, I agree. That captured something that all of us sort of feel but might not necessarily... No, I, I
1: mean, I agree completely. That was the idea in choosing or, or advocating for everything is horrible. Um, but, you know, they didn't do the the best job and they didn't really have very much of a marketing plan beyond like, let's get the New York times to review it. Um, and did the New York times review it? No, 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 no. I suspect I got punished for the caper with, I hate the internet. That's my, my theory. It, it there was a discussion. There were back channels in fair play to penguin. They really pursued that review. People were being stopped in elevators, you know, weird New York shit that I can't even understand. Um, They tried. They genuinely tried on that. But if the linchpin of doing something like that is, let's get one review, I think it's really easy to assume that's going to be happening. But then what happens if it doesn't, you know, Um, it means you have no backup. It means you have nothing really. Um, and so it came out and it, I knew instantly that it was, it meant that like, whatever this crazy glow from, I hate the internet had evaporated and it was just gone. And, you know, like, like I said, part of that's my fault because I should, if I, if I were a more strategic thinking person, I would have understood what, it would mean to follow up something like "I Hate the Internet" with a much more conventional, conventionally structured and written novel, which is, I think, it signals in a way. And um, and I don't think this is the case, but I think it can signal. it. I think it can signal a kind of personal. Uh, what's the right way to say it? I think it. Can, I think it signals that all of the qualities that were in that were in "I Hate the Internet." maybe those qualities were ephemeral, right? Maybe those qualities were someone having a weird outsider book with these outsider opinions, but that actually just wants to be an insider. And to, to a degree that's true, but to another degree, it's never been true. And I think a lot of this stuff is about perception, you know? And I, th- I think a lot of it was like, basically I took the easiest path, Right. right, right.
0: Well, but the thing is, though, is that, you, you know, you're you're as the writer, you're asked to create the book, write the book. Yeah. This level of strategic thinking, that shit exhausts me.
1: Uh, I hate it. Like having to think through, like, well, what's the market going to think? No, it's and how do I
0: compete? And like, it's, it's like, fuck.
1: I, I, I mean, this is the thing. I agree with you. No writer should actually have to do that. I think to survive now, people have to. Right. And if you're not, if you don't learn how to get good at it, You're going to get fucked. So how do you get good at it? You have to like think like a marketing person or I I mean, in my case, I think it's like relearning lessons that I didn't want to learn and then forgot once I learned them, like everything about, I hate the internet was put together strategically. The cover was designed, even though people think the cover is hideous, it's intentionally fucking hideous. The title, everything was so strategic. Um, and that's part of why it succeeded. I mean ultimately I think you could have printed like a white book that just had that title on the front of it in Times New Roman and it probably still would have sold quite a few copies. So I don't know. I mean you you try to get better at it. You try to think about how to do it. But I mean like
0: are you looking to outside
1: resources? Like are you actually studying up thinking about When marketing? I did I hate the internet. I actually read a lot of books about marketing which um, I don't know how useful that actually was, but I did. Um No, I don't know, some of it's instinct, too. Like what books on marketing did you read? God, I don't remember. Like Seth like, Godin books or things like that. No, like like books on marketing by academics. Oh, okay. Like not anything popular, but like things by or like you know, economists who are stru- or who are Or social scientists who are studying marketing and thinking about it. What were some insights? Were there any that you can remember? Oh, um, no. And that's what I mean. Like, you forget this stuff if you're not hyper vigilant about it. And there's an argument that maybe that hypervigilance about something like that, maybe that's mental illness. You know, like an undiagnosed mental illness to be a person who's constantly thinking about this shit. But it's clear that there are people who do. Yeah. Well, yeah. And
0: then like, I think, and I also feel like some people have an intuitive gift for it. Yeah. Like they just know how to, and like, this isn't necessarily to denigrate. This is actually, I I think there's something to people having a gift for being able to reach an audience and connect right? and channel, you know, some, some, somehow like intuitively channel how, um, people are feeling, I don't know, they just have a popular sensibility or something. And I, I kind of feel like I don't think I'm ever going to have that. Uh, like, and I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'm that disappointed about it,
1: but you just notice it in certain people. They know how to please an audience. I mean, I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? Where you certainly can get sales from that. What that actually does to the individual who has to be like that or who is in this or who is so tapped in to whatever the zeitgeist is that Whatever is natural for them becomes, I don't know, becomes popular product. I don't think that's a happy place to be. No, that's, I, that's my guess. I
0: think I'm like, I feel, I, you know, I've thought about this, like right. with, with regard to this show, yeah. like, you know, you obviously want an audience, but what are you willing to do to get one? And right. if, do, do I want to sit around every day thinking about right. analytics? And do I want to think about like, well, do I need to run yeah. ads on, you know, I think it's a long game. Just keep yeah. making,
1: stuff that pleases you i mean i think i think that's a strategy which actually often pays out dividends it's just a really hard strategy like what you've done is incredibly hard how many episodes are you on 603 as of this so, recording so what is that like 12 years no eight. no eight eight years sorry my math is terrible yeah um but you know that's like that's a thing that there's some moment with everything, if you keep doing it, where it just becomes a slog and it's a thankless slog and you're like, God, why am I doing this? And then there's another moment beyond that where when you keep doing a thing and you keep doing it well and you keep just doing the same thing, who can say what the actual impact of that is in terms of you know, what it will bring to you monetarily, but... I think it actually does bring something really, I think, it, I think it's becomes part of the culture. Right. And it becomes a reliable part of the culture. Right. I, you, you hang around yeah. long enough yeah, may, yeah. making
0: books or paintings or poems or yeah. if you just consistently make stuff right. and you just, you know, and damn the torpedoes. Yeah. Eventually people are like, Oh
1: yeah. You know, that exists. That's a fact. Brad Listy is a fact. Right. That's how I feel. About I'm a you. fact. You're a fact. You know, and it's an amazing thing. It's like eight years. Literary culture has changed so much. Right. In those eight years. And to have someone who has a consistent interaction with it across that time, that's amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a...
0: I mean, let's see. Eight years ago. It's like you can you can get hard to place... Eight years ago, it, there was still Alt-Lit. Do you remember Alt-Lit? Right, yeah. You know? Well, that which was a big part of the show. A lot of those yeah, authors yeah. came on. I mean, but... I'm also thinking about like the, you know, technologically where things were 2011. I mean, I don't know. It all moves at hyperspeed yeah. and eight years, like a lot can change, but, yeah. um, you know, I think for authors, like the authors that I have on this program, and I've said this before, it's the ones who like, don't necessarily do it for money primarily. Um, you know, like what are, what are the rules? They read a lot. They don't do it for money and they write pretty much every day. Right. Like that's the formula, yeah. you know, for happiness, I think, and productivity. But like (laughs) people, you know, it's hard. People want to make a living at it. And I think everybody secretly thinks they're going to be the one. Right. Well, and I was the
1: one. You were. (laughs) (laughs) So, and it's hard to keep up. So to get back to where, where we started, because this is actually a really good back jumping on, uh, jumping on point. Um, I knew instantly that the book had failed. And I knew that it was really incumbent upon me. The future won't be long. The, the had future, the future the f- won't be long. Had failed. So
0: you, you know, the, just so people stay oriented. Right. The follow-up to I Hate the Internet. The, right. The, you know, the much-awaited. Yeah. You know, yeah. eagerly f-
1: anticipated follow-up just like fell flat. Yeah. I mean, I think it sold three hundred copies in about six months, excluding like library sales. It did not sell. Um, And people were right not to buy it. Um, it made no sense in the moment. It just made no sense. Um, I had written this other thing while building up to the release of the future won't be long. And I told my agent at the time, send them this manuscript. Now, have you sent, have you changed agents? I don't have an agent. No. Oh, you don't No. what happened. <laughs> That's a long story. <laughs> um, I, We can get to that later, but let me, let me try to stay on track. Um, we, so he sent the manuscript to Viking, which had an option on my next book. And then, you know, these options are supposed to be for 30 days. I think it turned into 90 days and then it turned into a rejection, but I knew the rejection was coming. I knew there was no way you could recover from that. Big of a failure. Um, and I also knew that the book we were sending out was not the appropriate book for the follow up to a massive failure. To literary, to all of the things that we think about literature being. Um, and had The Future Won't Be Long succeeded, you could see how that could be a follow up book. It could not be the follow up book to a failure. So when I got back And
0: wait, what book did you send out? It's like what's the third book that you sent?
1: The third book I weirdly enough it's ended up recycled into the book that we're talking about now, but it was like this really complicated thing that's I don't want to explain. Just, okay, but it wasn't this book. It's not this book. Got no. It. Um parts of it have been recycled into this book. Um and it's just like this isn't going to happen right like i could tell i just knew it was not a mystery to anyone i then as soon as i got home because i had gone to new york to do an event um for the future won't be long at the strand um and then they had flown me to san francisco to do an event and you know, like you can see it. You could just see the, the indifference and in people like people would, it was a big crowd. Because like one of the legacies of I Hate the Internet is I will always be able to draw a room of about like 35 depressed people in San Francisco. <laughs> um, you know, and it was like, it was a good event. It was a really good event. No one wanted the book. No, people would buy I Hate the Internet, but they would not buy The future won't be long. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. And I mean, they didn't even, you know, like you could just tell none of them cared because when it got to the Q and A, it was like questions about the internet and it's like, fine, you know? And so I I adapted. I'm like, okay, this will just have to be an event about I hate the internet because that book is not going to have any traction. What do you think it is? I think people want from you.
0: If I'm going to try to diagnose this yeah. based on only Americans burn in hell and I hate the internet, right? Is that what they like is they want you to, to, um, com- you know, comment on the present day.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we live in such an incredibly confusing moment where so many things that we have taken as givens as American citizens have eroded or collapsed completely Arguably, since 2016, I think the process was probably going on for a while before then. But Trump is an accelerant, right? Like things that were happening instantly happened, right? right? Like things that would have taken 10 to 15 years happened in like two months or three months. And I think the reality of it is, is just that like fiction and writing by virtue that are print writing by virtue of just the mechanisms, by virtue of the fact that these books have a long lead time and we live in a moment where everything's changing constantly. Um, That shit doesn't keep up, you know, like that, like the future won't be long. The fundamental reason it failed is not that it's a bad book. I think it's a pretty good book. It's not the best thing I've ever done, but it, it's pretty good it has everything you actually want from a novel if you think people still want things from novels that they wanted in the 20th century um but it doesn't say a word about where we are now right it has a sort of universal sentiment and those things don't change but we're also in a moment of total chaos right um the way the analogy that i've thought of <laughs> is like imagine all of the people, and there were probably thousands of them who had spent years working on novels, and maybe some of them were bad, maybe some of them were good, maybe some of them were really good, and we're getting into the end stages, and this is in nineteen forty one right. They were getting into the end stages. It's like, oh, my intricately composed book about rural, you know, like small town life in the Midwest, right? Like this is really going to be the book. This is really something. And then Pearl Harbor happens. And it's like instantly all of that work, instantly all of that writing means nothing. And it might not mean nothing in the long term. But in the short term, people people are too. You know, like this massive fundamental shift in American life has now happened, and there is no way that things written before it can possibly address it. You right. Know?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that there is an element of, you know, I call it like the cosmic element where you, you know, books have to be timed well. Right. And I don't think I think it's like a losing. It's a losing pursuit to try to game that. Right. Like to try to write to the moment. Yeah. You sort, but you do have to have your antenna up. Some writers can do it better than others. You obviously can do it because right. you're paying attention. Yeah. And you're able to assimilate a lot of information and you're a satirist. And, yeah. You know, like...
1: like There's a, there is a way that I've found where you can write around it. You can't write around it entirely. If something really mega happens, you're fucked. There's no... There's no coming back from that. There is a way in which if you're very, very careful and you're talking about specific things or specific events that you can kind of write around that, but you're still at the whims of fate. You know, you're still completely at the whims of fate. So like what actually that, that, when I started writing Only Americans Burn in Hell it was the week that I came back from that trip for The Future Won't Be Long. And what, like, where, where are we in time? This is like uh, late August 2017, okay. September 2017. So Something, first
0: year of the Trump administration.
1: Yeah, yeah. Charlottesville has just happened. Um, and I, actually I had a woman ask me a question at one of the events where she was like, which was the best question anyone asked which was what's it like to try to promote a book right now? And it's like horrible, you know, it's a terrible moment to be doing this. And I really appreciated the question because it was like, that's the smartest question, you know, of 50 that I was asked, you know, that's the one that seemed to me the most about whatever people were sitting through in the moment. So I came home, started working on... The idea originally was to do a fantasy novel um, in the voice of I Hate the Internet. Not exactly the voice, but something close to it. And Why a fantasy novel? I had, um, on that trip, I had ended up in some people's apartment. And these are very good liberals, close, close friends of mine. And then at some moment and this was like at a minor party they were like let's go watch some tv i was like okay because i like watching people watch tv i think you learn more from that than from tv itself and then it was like some episode of game of thrones and it was just like you know like once or twice every season game of thrones has the real big battle sequence and it was just like war porn right and They were really, really into it. And this is not to sit on judgment of them on them, really. Um, but it was so weird because these are people who, if you were to ask them their opinions about U S foreign policy would be like, no, it's terrible. We shouldn't be in these wars but then are going and watching popular entertainment that to me in that moment seemed like a real reflection of how militaristic we had gotten post nine 11. And I thought that was interesting. And I thought like by using the voice, that sort of really sarcastic, you know, uh, flat affect of, I hate the internet to try to do a fantasy novel. You could kind of get at the heart of whatever this thing was, or... you,
0: you bring up an interesting point, the popularity of game of Thrones and the way that it functions, uh, and it works on the audience psychologically, yeah. the American audience in yeah. particular, but it's like, you know, we have even pr- prior to Trump, I think a lot of people, I mean, what was the approval rating of Congress? It was like 15%. Right. So people had very diminished faith in public institutions right. and in, uh, our elected representatives representing our interests. And then you have this show That basically uh, presents people in power and the machinations of it and everything that goes on behind the
1: scenes and how corrupt and, you know, venal it is. And it's like, of course this is appealing. Yeah. And it's also war porn, you know, for a society that's been at war for almost 20 years and we never talk about it. Right. And so maybe there's something healthy about that. You know, maybe it's a way by which people can, on some symbolic level, think about the war that we're in or the wars that we're in i don't really believe that i i tend to think i don't think most people even realize we're in war yeah i mean i think and so to me that's just like how violent american entertainment has gotten in a really militarized way is interesting because you can go watch you know i don't know you can go watch all of the Scorsese films from the 70s, right? And those are incredibly violent films. They're not militaristic in the way that our entertainment has become now. Um and like every superhero film. I was just going to say is is war porn, you know? Like and I mean I had also I think that year is also the year that Wonder Woman had come out. And I found that incredibly Disturbing. I found the reaction to Wonder Woman incredibly disturbing. Not that there shouldn't be representation in media, because, I, I mean, this is one of those things where I know everyone else is right and I'm wrong. Like, I don't care that much about representation in media because I tend to think the bottom line is the most important thing in media, which is, like, you can have representation, but if it's just kicking up to the same old white dude's who own everything is the, is the effect of people patronizing representative media actually more harmful in the long run by virtue of the fact that it enriches the people who keep, um, who have a, who have a structural reason to keep everyone else from getting any money. You know, uh, I fully accept that no one agrees with me on this. <laughs> But I think it's a point worth making. It's a point in only Americans. Um, so anyway, wrote a fantasy novel, did the first draft. It was horrible. It was so bad. And then I was trying to figure out, like, how do, you, how do you do this? How do you write? How do you make this good? And the thing that I started thinking about is, like, what the modern world right now is about is about interruption We're just like, we're constantly interrupted. No one can do anything without Trump showing up, just constantly showing up. And so then I was, and then, you know, another thing that happened was the Me Too movement happened. And sadly, the the plot line that I had chosen for the book, I realized you could accidentally, if you were squinting, read it as like far-right anti-me-too propaganda and it is not but i could see people being like is this about me too and i'm like oh fuck you know like this whole thing is ruined what
0: was it what was it i mean specifically that you thought could it's have about been misconstrued.
1: well so the book is i mean this gets into pretentiousness but the char- all the characters in the book are from a piece of Elizabethan pulp fiction from 1598 called The Most Pleasant History of Tom Lincoln," written by Richard Johnson. It's a terrible book. It's just pulp. Um, but there's a really interesting section where Tom Lincoln goes to fairyland. And he get- fairyland is this isle. And it's ruled by women. And they've exiled and killed all the men. And that to me seemed really interesting because it's it's basically the plot of or the the setup of Wonder Woman four hundred years before Wonder Woman was invented or however. How, how did
0: you stumble upon this piece of like I, a, I
1: was I didn't want to invent characters I didn't want to invent characters I wanted to find old something old that I could repurpose um, and somehow stumbled on this thing which like no one has thought about in any way except for one guy in 1978 um and so i had written it as this fantasy novel where these women from fairyland are just rampaging through los angeles killing everyone and you know looking for the lot the queen's lost daughter and i realized that like the built-in there's because everyone reads everything allegorically there was no way that it couldn't seem like it was a book about me too. And at first I was like, well, I should maybe, you know, and if (laughs) I should say, if the worst thing that comes out of, if the worst thing that's happened that comes out of this movement of people sharing these incredibly painful, these incredibly awful episodes in their life is that it makes it hard for me to do a book. Like I'm coming out way ahead of the curve on that. Um, But it occurred to me, like, God, I could just put all of this in the book. I can just make all of this stuff that's happening. Like, why can't this be a book about someone trying to write that fantasy novel, but continually being interrupted by reality? Because that is the world we live in. And that is actually kind of a good mirror of what it's like to be in Trump's America. You can't do anything without Trump just popping up like this hideous specter, right. You know, or shitting all over everything or making everything horrible or people's reactions to Trump's, you know, justifiable reactions, but like being really weirded out and everyone not knowing what to do. Um, And then it occurred to me that the single funniest thing was that the future won't be long had failed, that it had failed completely because and that that failure could also be brought into the book, because what is fucking funnier than that than someone who had a huge success, huge unexpected success who then got involved with the biggest publishing conglomerate in the country and had a massive failure, <laughs> and then it also occurred to me that that there's a comic way to sort of analyze a really unspoken thing that dominates all of our lives. If you're in media or if you care about media, which is we never talk about who owns publishers. We never talk about who owns film companies. We never talk about who owns television. Right. And, One of the things that's really funny about Penguin Random House is that they're owned by Bertelsmann, which is a company with a horrible, horrible history. It was a major part of the Third Reich. They used Jewish slave labor. They uh, printed a ton of Nazi propaganda. And now, admittedly, all the people who are at that company are gone right? But they still did it. And that company still exists. And I entered, entered into a business contract essentially with that company. There wasn't a non-disparagement clause in the contract. So it just made me really start thinking about publishing and, you know, I mean, it's really weird, right? Like I do not fault any writer who wants to get on one of these presses because I know I was one of them. I know exactly the benefits or at least the assumed benefits of being published by Penguin or Harper's or whoever. Um, But when you do business with these companies, you're doing business with some really shady people. And maybe some of that shadiness is in the past. Some of it isn't Harper Collins is owned by Rupert Murdoch, right? And it's like Harper Collins and it is not an insult to any editor working there. I mean, I'm never going to be published by HarperCollins, <laughs> so it's fine. But really, like, I do not begrudge people having jobs. I do not. At the same time, it's really fucking weird that you and that there are some writers who, if you go and look at on Twitter, are the most liberal writers imaginable you know or most left writers imaginable and they're saying all the things that you want someone to be saying that i want someone to be saying you know i'm in concert with all of them i believe more more or less i am the metropolitan liberal elite you know like i have a set of beliefs it's pretty much in concert with any of these people um and they're reacting to Fox News and they're upset about it. And oh my God, can you believe Fox News said this? Oh my God, look at this racist opinion on Fox News. But then you look at the writer and they're published by HarperCollins. Right. And it's like you can, in something like that, you can see how sewn up the whole fucking thing is. Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News, who owns HarperCollins, you know, he can upset liberals with Fox News, and then he can publish books that are primarily driven by that upset, right? Like, one of the sad truths of the last 20 years is that liberalism in America has not entirely, but certainly partially been defined by a reaction to Fox News, right? And it should be, because Fox News is abhorrent, but to then go be published by the person who owns Fox news, that's weird. And we never ever talk about that. That's it. right.
0: I would, I would even go so far as to say that there are probably authors published by uh, Harper Collins and associated imprints who don't realize.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I, I, you know, it's one of those questions, how much responsibility do you expect a writer to have? I don't know, I, I don't know the answer to that. At the same time, it seems to me like an unbelievable hypocrisy to be like, well, I oppose all of these things, but I will make money for the person who has injected this into our society in a way that no one else has. So it quickly became a book in part about these things and about this interruption. And then, you know, it got revised and it kept going And at some point it became a, you know, this sounds incredibly arrogant, but it became a really good book in a way that usually I think my work is terrible for about four years and then I can sort of see where it is. Um, And I think it's, I honestly think it's the first novel that really approaches what it means to be alive in this moment and to experience this constant noise of being alive in american life in the trump era um how participatory are you you seem like you hold yourself outside a little bit what do you mean
0: just like you're not on twitter you're not in the social media morass. but i don't have
1: to be because i have i'm friends all of my friends are liberals everyone's freaking out around me constantly so you, you get know it that i way. have i get it i get it secondhand. do I you did, read the internet news or anything like that i mean i look at the times i look at drudge report there's a huge part about matt drudge in this book because i think matt drudge really shaped american society it's so fucked up you know he was he was a guy who worked in the uh gift shop at cbs studios in studio city and he was living on whitley in hollywood when hollywood was terrible when like where he lived basically was part of the yucca corridor, like drug prostitution thing. I mean, it was bad. Um, He lived in the Fontenoy. He lived on the ninth floor. And one day his dad came to visit him and was like, what the hell are you doing? So they go to the circuit city on sunset (laughs) and he buys Drudge a computer. And like in that moment, so much of what would be defined about American life just like solidifies with and, the, with the, purchase, of a the purchase of a computer at circuit city at, on sunset, which is gone now. I was going to say, I
0: was trying to think of where it is. It's not even there anymore. I,
1: I, I think it's the one that used to be near the Vista theater. Um, I don't know. I know it's a circuit city on sunset. He's such a shadowy figure though. You don't really see Drudge. He no. kind of purposefully hides. No. I mean, I think Drudge is a genius. I think he's an evil genius, but I think he's, well, not even evil, a misguided genius. Um, he, he was in the limelight when that all first started happening. And then when what all first started happening, his website, his newsletter. So it was originally an email newsletter And then it was eventually turned into a website around 1999 after the Clinton impeachment stuff. Um, He was more visible then. And he got sued by a Clinton aide because he had written this story, which in fairness, drudge, he retracted almost immediately when he realized it wasn't true that this aide um, had some sort of affair i can't remember but drudge got sued for huge amounts of money and it was a really strange thing because it was a guy who literally probably was making three thousand dollars a month living in an apartment in the hell of what hollywood used to be (laughs) being sued for like 50 million dollars by a white house aide who was in the white house and that's when he started to go into the shadows but he was really around and he, I think he really wanted to be taken seriously and wasn't. He just wasn't taken seriously by the traditional media, which, you know, has a certain liberal bias that I don't care about. I'm glad it does, but it's there. Um, and then he sort of got taken in by conservatives and taken into a really shadowy network that no one understands that. I don't think is that shadowy. I just think it's like rich people with money. Um, who need like a propagandist. Yeah. Who, who, who see the virtue in what he does. Cause I mean, one thing about drudge, which I don't know is true about everyone else. Drudge is genuine, right? Like he believes what he's doing. I think he's wrong, but he believes it. You know, some of these people, Look to me a little bit like LA people who were floating around, couldn't really get the career they wanted and then realized, oh, there's money to be made. That's like Hannity. He's a performance artist. Yeah.
0: He might believe it. He might've said it so many times now that he believes right. some of his own shtick, but yeah, yeah. I remember Keith Olbermann saying that when they were young and starting out in the news business, he like was talking to Hannity and was just like, yeah, you can just lie. You just say whatever you want I'll right. pay you, you know, right. And like, he was so very candid
1: about, yeah, yeah. Uh, he,
0: he's in on the ruse. Yeah, but, see, Dr-
1: Drudge, I think is genuine. But Drudge,
0: I feel like, and I don't, I'm no expert on right. Drudge. I used to read, like, there was a certain period of my internet existence where I would read Drudge Report and Huffington Post in mm-hmm. close <laughs> concert with one another to try to see what the two, like the right. dueling narratives. Right. And it does have a certain... Uh, like it's, it's very much PR, you know, he's like spinning certain narratives that he wants to drive. And I don't know, I I guess, like, I guess part of me, like questions, like how much does he really believe this versus like, how much is he like, I know that by now he he is attuned to what like Fox news
1: and his general audience wants him to push. I, you know, I think I genuinely think he believes what he runs. Where's he from originally? Uh, DC outside of DC. Okay. I think, but really from Hollywood. You know, he, I mean, so much of this stuff is all LA, which is a thing that also never gets talked about. Like so much of what political media, right wing online driven media is mostly the really successful stuff has LA DNA in it. Like Breitbart. Like Andrew Breitbart. Yeah. Really? He was drudge's assistant. Was he? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's an amazing video which is on the C-SPAN of Drudge doing, and I write about it in the book, Drudge doing an event at USC, like a panel with, um, God, I can't remember who they are, but like high popes of a certain kind of journalism that doesn't exist anymore, right? Michael Kinsey is one of them. Um, and I can't remember who the other guy is. And, you know, like they think Drudge is a complete clown. I mean, they're basically insulting him to his face as he's on a stage. The only question from the audience is Breitbart. He's in the audience. And this is long before the website, long before anything. And he asks Drudge, which I don't think is a bad question, right? He asks him a question that's like, why are you people, by, by who he means Kinsey and whoever this high pope is... Um, why are you willing to allow Hunter S. Thompson a license with the truth, but you are keeping Drudge to a level of veracity you don't expect from other reporters? I don't think that's a bad question. Um, they can't answer it. Like their answer is terrible, and it's like you can see in that moment, Breitbart is the only one in that room who takes Drudge seriously. And this is a guy who really wants to be taken seriously. You can see it going where it's going to go. Right. He's like, hey, do you want a job? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Let's, Let's hang out. Yeah. And I mean, shortly after Breitbart was Drudge's assistant. And then when Breitbart founded Breitbart, Drudge would just link to it constantly, which is how the site came into being. How much, and like, I mean, not to spend too much time on Matt yeah. Drudge, but like. Well, I could spend hours yeah. on Drudge. He's made a lot of money. Oh, he's as rich as Croesius. What does he get paid? Like advertising. Advertising, yeah. Jesus Christ. Advertising.
0: And it's like, it's the most like rudimentary. That's part of the genius,
1: right? Everyone else on the planet who had done a website in 1997 would have changed the design every year, every two years every three years. And there was a moment like in 2005 where his site looked really hideous. Now it looks amazing. It's a totally efficacious information delivery system that looks like it was designed by someone in 1997 because it was, it's brilliant. I mean, that is really, that's like, that's the kind of shit that like Steve jobs was obsessed with the complete marriage of content and form with the least amount of interference and as the internet has gotten clunkier as it's become more ad driven you know drudge has ads but they're minor you know and he gets literally it's like uh, tens of millions of maybe that's high but maybe 10 million hits a day you know that's a lot of ads yeah Yeah.
0: And it's like, it's funny to think of him as like a design genius.
1: Yeah, but he is. Drudge is a genius. He just, unfortunately, the genius is directed in a way that I would prefer it wasn't. Right. But I can't deny it. You know, Drudge is a genius. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's influential. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, he, all of those guys, that entire right wing media ecosystem that's online, I don't think would exist if he hadn't done it first
0: yeah and i think you know like when you talk about the success of right wing media you know because everyone's like why isn't there a talk radio of the left to counter this well it's like if you're if you're not beholden to any rules of decency or morality
1: (laughs) there is that you know
0: then it's a lot easier like if you're willing to cheat like this is the same thing for like you know everyone's like the democrats are bad at politics i'm like well they 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 don't cheat yeah they they aren't willing to just completely uh shatter like norms and right. you know stomp all over the constitution it's like when you're willing to do all that stuff you know like it's not right but it can be effective you know uh, yeah i agree yeah. i mean so I it's agree. like okay like i mean if if we were both playing by that set of rules then we would just be um i think a uh, a fast track to complete oblivion right like nobody's holding the line unless somebody Hold. in that in that scenario yeah yeah you know and i uh I don't know. It's like, like Fox news and Laura Ingram and Rush Limbaugh, these people, Sean Hannity he'll literally say anything. You put yeah. it in the prompter. He's going to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I think like there's a big fascination. I guess they had that, that uh, show about Roger Ailes on Showtime. Did mm-hmm. you, I don't know if you saw I, it. I
1: didn't see it. I read I, the book. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's called the loudest voice in the room. I think it's by mm-hmm. Gabriel Sherman, but it's basically all about the history of Fox and Roger Ailes right. and how it came to be. But, um, I like one of the biggest questions I have about the aftermath of Trump. And like, if we ever emerge from this moment, right. like intact and with an opportunity to potentially right some wrongs mm-hmm. is what do we do about our media culture? Because I'm as close to a free speech absolutist. Right. As I think you can be, I believe right. in freedom of expression, but when it comes to our news media and the responsibility that that should entail right. to inform the public, like you call yourself Fox News, you have billions of dollars, right. you know, s- cycling through this corporation and fueling it and giving it all the trappings of legitimacy, right? But you're devoted to driving a political narrative, no matter the cost, no matter how at odds with right. the, the facts it is, right? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like an unscrupulous ruse right and if you try to regulate it then you're going to have people saying that you're stomping on free speech
1: yep so what do we do i mean i i think the solution to it actually is not worrying so much about the speech itself or the content itself but worrying about what it means to live in a country where 99% 99% of the dialogue is the product of generously 25 companies, right? I, my theory about why Fox News is so successful is that Fox News is a really old school model, right? You, It basically all comes down to Rupert Murdoch. What Murdoch wants, that happens. And because of that, Murdoch is actually, there's a kind of Generosity is the wrong word, but there's a generosity for where the content can go, right? So Murdoch is a guy who could hire Roger Ailes, and Roger Ailes is a guy who I think innately understood what television was like for the people who grew up with television. In the sense that people who could remember a time before television... And could remember and had sat in front of television and watched it change and changed with it. And that's why Fox News is so good with old people, right? Because it's a kind of television that I don't think I can see, but that they can see. But Murdoch was you know, was able to hire him. And obviously Ailes has this storied history of like working for Nixon and all of this shit. But ultimately, that network was a personal vision of Ailes, right? Corporate media is not good on personal visions, and I think it's really hurt us, hurt us as a country because there's no exactly like what you said. People have been saying, "Where's the right? Where's the left wing talk radio?" Um, where's the left wing Fox news? Cause MSNBC ain't cutting it. Right. And I, th- I think it's something about me- media consolidation where like those companies don't operate the companies that could now buy conceivably Comcast, right. Which we know there are companies that can do that. Like at and does not have a Rupert Murdoch at the head of the company who can allow things to be funky AT&T is in their acquisition of all of, you know, like if you read any of the articles about what's happening to HBO, HBO, which was this really singular sort of vision, they're about to make game shows because AT&T bought them. Uh, And because they're like $2 billion of profitability each year wasn't enough. They need to get it up to like six. Right. Um, In that, I don't think there's any hope for a counterbalance to any of this stuff. Um, The the media, the consolidated media cannot have viewpoints in it. Murdoch is a weird anomaly and that's why he was able to do it. I think everyone should be broken up. I was just going to say, that sounds like the solution. Yeah, I think that's the solution. I don't
0: regulate the speech or like put
1: put rules
0: on how a news program has, because like, I've had people on this program and I've read online and elsewhere, you know, they're saying we need to reinstitute the fairness doctrine. Right. To make sure that there's some balance in terms of how viewpoints are presented right. on TV so that the viewer at home yeah, at yeah. least hears a counterpoint. Right. Um which I don't think is a terrible idea.
1: It's not a terrible but idea. But it's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix it. I think yeah. I think the reality is it is so much harder now than it was even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, certainly 30 or 40 years ago for distinct ideas and voices to get into the media if it's if the media you're talking about is the media that dominates 99 percent of the discourse right like corporations are terrified of everything the whole concern is don't lose advertisers don't do things that are going to that's going to you know, upset the Apple car and you can kind of carve out a niche, which MSNBC definitely has done. But even there, there's limits, you know, you can see the limits. If you watch two hours of that thing, the weird thing about Fox news is like Murdoch is old school. He's from God. I mean, he's practically 90, right? You know, he's like an old school Australian newspaper publisher has a very different idea about what can happen under his watch. And it almost sounds like a compliment. And maybe in a way it is, it's just too bad that what happens under his watch is abhorrent and destructive and destructive. Done, exactly. like, I mean, it's almost
0: yeah. like, like, is he does he know how much harm he's done to the discourse in this country? I mean, and to the, and to people. But I mean,
1: the thing is, how much does he care? You know, he's not worried about the discourse in the U S like I have this theory. that the entire country is held together by dinner party invitations where like we've become our structure has become so oligarchical that the way by which you the way by which the people who are in actual power are restrained is not through the laws it's through invitations to certain dinner parties and like You know, like a really good example of this, I think, is the Supreme Court, right? The reason Roberts is not as crazy conservative, or has like sort of drifted left, and the reason why Kavanaugh, who, you know, my assumption was after those hearings, that guy was going to come out and basically be the most right-wing judge ever, but it's actually been, given the spectrum, not nearly as bad as people thought he was going to be. I think it's because those guys want to be invited to dinner parties in Georgetown, (laughs) right? Like, I genuinely think that's what it is. Like, they can see Clarence Thomas and they can see where he gets invited or they can see Gorsuch and they can see where he gets invited. And they know those aren't the best parties, right? I think that's how it works. Murdoch is in London, so it doesn't matter. No one in England cares. Their society's falling apart. Right. You know, and they got they, their
0: own problems. They
1: got their own problems. Murdoch lives in Mayfair. He does not, it does not matter. It's to just him. money. To it's him. just money.
0: And in, and in Fox news is a huge moneymaker. So great. Yeah. It's working.
1: Exactly. Whatever we're doing, and, you know, yeah, and damn, yeah.
0: and like, that's the thing. It's like these people don't care about the consequences outside no. of their bottom line. No,
1: no. And it's like, you know, he's fine in London. You know, he, he gets, there's an amazing, um, John le Carré wrote an autobiography and there's this amazing vignette in it where one of Murdoch's papers said some wrote, published some article about how I think people in Poland, and this was, I assume communist Poland uh, wanted to do an adaptate, uh a theatrical adaptation of one of le Carré's books and the article in, say, The Times or The Sun or whatever was um, about how Le Carre had some extortionate demand from these pe- these poor communists who just wanted to you know, struggle towards freedom through theater. And Le Carre wanted 10,000 pounds, and these people don't have two cents to rub together. The actual story apparently was like he asked for 20 bucks or whatever the equivalent was. And he had met Murdoch at some dinner party and Murdoch had given him his card. So he calls Murdoch and he sets up a lunch and Murdoch is really deferential to him and gets a retraction published in the paper. And it's like, that tells you everything, right? Like that's a guy who's tuned into UK society. Cause you can't fuck with John le Carre. you know, like this unbelievably successful writer who's also very, very talented and who is the establishment, right? Like he came out of the secret services. Right, right. You know, like that's what drives these things. We've we as a society have gone so crazy that like the social shame of I don't know, ten thousand people controls a lot of the way that the country goes
0: yeah i mean I, I i i don't disagree i think that maybe there's a part of me that's like well maybe that's healthy
1: you In know a way that, it is because i just you, don't think you, it should be that few we need
0: yeah we but we yeah. do need i feel like people of varying political viewpoints to intermingle socially right you know i think the tribalism of politics can be problematic not only in in the real but also online right where you're in these echo chambers and you're on a social media feed right. where you're only hearing right. from people who agree with you
1: yeah, yeah yeah you
0: know and it's just like everyone's just split off from one another but if we actually
1: had to interact i'm i'm working on it i'm trying to get booked on um some of the daily wire shows it's been, it's been interesting thus far
0: would you like to go on there and be like a counterpoint or?
1: yeah yeah i'm trying to go on ben shapiro Right. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I we're chasing it. Really?
0: Yeah. And w- would you be worried? Because the thing about it is that like, it sounds good. I've had that fantasy too. Right. Like, go, go, like to go on Hannity and just get to like be the counterpoint. <laughs> but once you're in that lion's den, like they know how to.
1: Oh, no. I mean, it, I mean, to me, that's, what's interesting about it. Right. It's a high risk situation where realistically speaking with books, there's never any risk it's really, really unusual for there to be any risk involved in anything involving the promotion of a book. There's huge risk on this podcast, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you you seem an affable fellow. So, um, no, I, I want to go on Shapiro. I mean, been emailing with them, sort of getting ignored, sort of not.
0: Well, you're, the title of your book should be enough to provoke them. Yeah, I mean,
1: I thought, I thought they would just like want me to come on and beat up on me. Like that would be appealing enough but, but see, no I, I mean it's a thing where like if it's done wrong could basically i basically could never write again you know and to me i don't know that's the death wish right <laughs> like but i don't know i think it would be interesting i think it would be really really interesting something to write about yeah to go into this thing
0: well i think too though that like sometimes you'll have somebody on Uh, They'll have somebody on, like, like usually they have somebody on who disagrees and who is like there for counterpoint, but they're really just a punching bag. Right. And that's the purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes that punching bag, like he or she will have his or her wits about them. Yeah. And will be able to subvert. And they usually just shut it down.
1: Like when people go on Tucker Carlson
0: and and like, they're actually able to sort of like hit back or they put him in a position that he doesn't like. He just shuts it down. Well, this
1: is the thing, right? What is interesting to me about those Daily Wire shows is it's a very different format than cable television by virtue of it being new media. You're in there for a while. Right. Like, if you go on Fox News and uh, you, even if you're the most cogent, completely on it person, That seven-minute segment format, you cannot do anything. Soundbite. Yeah. But I don't know. Something like the Daily Wire, the Ben Shapiro show. I I, I think that could genuinely be interesting. And I mean, you know, not interested in going in and pissing all over the place, right? I think it could be really fascinating. So I'm chasing it. I I don't know if they're going to do it, but... Well, we'll see, and like yeah. I
0: want to get to, I want to get back to your book. Oh, right, yeah, and the publication uh, experience, like this time around, like you went back to kind of like your old ways with this. You had the Penguin Random House experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Having failed out of mainstream publishing in the U.S., um, no, it was a different, it was a different experience because I hate the internet. Did pretty well in the UK. Um, the future won't be long. Did pretty okay there not great but oh respectable right so i have a very good relationship with serpent's tale which is an imprint of profile books for my uk publishers and after a lot of complications with trying to send this book out through my agent to u.s publishers um You know, and it's like, I've said it before, but it it bears repeating. The best sales strategy may not be sending a manuscript to Penguin Random House in which you denounce Penguin Random House (laughs) for being Nazi collaborators, (laughs) but it seemed worth a try. But, um, yeah, so Serpent's Tale, after I'd, you know, parted ways with my agent and just sort of gone totally solo with no idea what to do serpent's tail asked me if I was working on anything and I sent them a version of this book that was about three fourths of the way done it didn't have an ending and some things weren't in it but you could it was much in a much better place than like when I had finished that first draft and was just like, what the fuck is this? This is terrible. This is not working. Um, And they offered to publish it in the UK. And then we worked through for about a year, just like me changing things, me adding things, whatever. And um, it came out in the spring of this year in the UK. And as usual, the one thing that I didn't think of is the thing that happened. Like I could went through all these different scenarios and what ended up happening is like, it just got unbelievably good reviews in major publications, except for the guardian who I think were disquieted by it. Um, and when that was weird, cause the guardian's always been really supportive and supposedly commissioned a review, but it just never showed up. Um But like, Murdoch's times ran an amazingly good review of it. Um, all of these other papers. So like, it was a really strange thing. Cause I wasn't going to publish it here because I was like, I don't see how you do it. You know, um, didn't really want to publish it with another press because the run times at other presses would mean that like, it would be coming out in the middle of 2020 and i think there's going to be a moment very soon where 2020 is going to block everything out it's originally it was just going to be the election now it's going to be impeachment and the election it's like try selling a book in that right um unless it's very perfectly timed yeah unless it's like fuck you trump (laughs) you know which which is the book i've spent my the last four years avoiding writing um that there just wasn't a way to do it. Um, And then those reviews started coming in and it was like, eh, I can kind of see it. And then I decided, all right, fine. I will publish it. It will be on my press, which since I hate the internet has come out, I've done like eight or nine of other people's books. And some of them have been more successful than others, but it's like a real press. It's a functioning business. And I was like, eh, I didn't want to go back to it, but I also saw there was like a very small window in which it was possible. And then otherwise the book, I don't know, it would be like, well, now you're thinking about 2021 or 2022 Yeah, yeah, and it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't have an agent. I, why don't you have an agent? You decided to part. Yeah, it was not. His fault. It was not my fault. I just don't think we were on the same page um, about where to go in the future. And I mean, part of that really is that I don't think publishing knows what it's doing at all anymore. I think the whole thing has kind of fallen apart. Um, th- and so, like, the thing is, when giant systems start to crumble, no one the people who can be the least responsive to that crumbling are people who are part of that system and like you know this whatever success this book has and maybe it won't have a lot and that's fine because it's it's a gamble there's no way that this could have been published in anything like a traditional way and been successful in the u.s i just don't think that's possible um a, I don't know if anyone would take it. B, because you know it is nothing if it, it is nothing if not a, a collection of incredibly scandalous opinions. Um, and B, even if someone did, I don't know if those institutions have the flexibility to do it in a way that is at all related to how strange the world has gotten. But, and and I don't mean the world, I mean the world of publishing. Like the thought that I've been having is in 2016, when I Hate the Internet came out, the whole idea was to make the book look as little like a self-published book as possible because that was the clear path to success. I think in this, in 2019, and that's, what three years and eight months later or whatever it is in 2019 it's like it has to look the most like someone on amazon kindle as possible like it should look as self-published as possible because whatever has happened and like i said trump is an accelerant i think it was happening anyway something about the trump era just brought this to an end point where it's like I'm not sure publishing works. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the model works. Even if you just think about the New York times review that arguably ruined my life. (laughs) Um, when that review came out and I suspect I may be the last person who has really had that experience of like a times book review really meaning something. Um, when that review came out, it was on the homepage. It was, you know, you could see it if you went down, if you scrolled down, like for less than half a second, it was really, really visible. If you look at the times website now, they don't even have book reviews on the front. They have stripped it down so much that like all the traditional outlets that used to drive engagement with books, those kind of aren't working anymore. Um, and like I said, systems are really bad at responding to their own systemic change, you know, and especially if that change is imposed from without. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. So it seemed like the right thing to do. I, we'll see if it was. I mean, it could be a catastrophic failure, which would I don't know. Maybe that would be the nail in the coffin. I don't know, though.
0: I mean, like, who's going to care? I mean, you just keep making your stuff.
1: No, I know. But I mean, in terms of whether or not it's the right place for all of my resources to be marshaled, I don't know. You know, I'll see. I certainly didn't think I would be here, like, not here, here, but in this moment, promoting a book this way. And that, I think, is reflective of trying to adapt to chaos what know? about serbia is serbia how's it doing in serbia it hasn't i don't know they haven't there's not a uh there hasn't been an offer of translation yet i don't know what that is but
0: is it all just driven by numbers are these people just looking at sales numbers making decisions
1: no i mean some people are stuff like that like serbia is a small market right yeah um That the my publisher in Serbia is this guy, Ivan, who runs a company called Buka. And he's like, he genuinely, if you could distill an image of what I would want in a publisher, it's that guy. He's such an operator. He he understands, he's got a whole ecosystem. He's got like a bookstore, that cafe that sells the books. He he's great. He's genuinely amazing um but no i don't know we'll see we'll see how it does i mean one thing that was weird about it coming out in the uk is there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance because when it was coming out in the uk and this is again like what you're saying it's like that's when england was supposed to leave the european union so i don't know how much attention anything was getting and then on top of that it's like to what degree are other European countries paying attention to what's happening in England? We know that they always will pay attention to the U.S. That's a legacy of World War II, right? Are but are these companies are are these countries paying attention to? That's a nice Freudian slip, by the way. Yeah. Companies, countries. Well, it's both, <laughs> right? right. Um, but are they paying attention to UK publication? Hard to say. I don't. I don't really know. I don't understand those complex cross-cultural things. Yeah. You and me both. So, you know, we'll see. I, I suspect if the book has any, makes any noise in the U S then probably a lot of foreign translation stuff will come in.
0: Right. Yeah. That's the market mover. Yeah. Like, that's the one that's yeah. going to have to get it. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, like the UK is, you know, the UK is great. The UK is a place where I have sold relative to the population, the best, Um, and also organically, um, and it's amazing. I I just don't know how much anyone is who isn't in the UK is paying attention to the UK. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you see things ending? Like I'm, you know, after spending a lot of time thinking about the current moment and the culture that we're living in, and. You know, you're a guy who's got his antenna up. Like, we're in... I think the impeachment
1: thing is a disaster.
0: Do you? Yeah. And so just so people know, like, we are talking on October 4th. Right. 2019. Yeah. And the reason I have to mark it is because things are moving yeah, so fast. exactly. That, that, like, by the time this episode goes live, we could live in an entirely different world. Yeah. So my question is, like, what What are we headed for? What do you
1: think? Nothing great. That's That's my answer. I think look if the fundamental question is whether or not trump is fit for office i agree he is not and i agree he should not be in that office at the same time i think the constitution is a surprisingly crude tool in terms of how you remove a president from office it's clear it's something they didn't want to think about they thought about it and they did whatever they wanted to do in terms of compromise, but it's not a great, like just by virtue of the fact that it's never happened in however many years, that tells you that that's not the most adept tool. And maybe that was by design. In any event, I have been operating on the assumption that Trump probably would get reelected in 2020. I, you know, as things have been moving forward, leading up to this moment of sort of impeachment drama, I was starting to feel like maybe he's not, you know, like, I don't think he's going to be the candidate. Maybe. maybe. I don't know if he's going to, I don't know if he's going to get convicted
0: in the Senate. Yeah. But I don't see how, I think he's going to be so badly damaged
1: that to run him well this is this is the thing, right? Like, as it's been going on, I've been thinking to myself, maybe Nancy Pelosi is making a bet that is a that is a smart bet, right? Which is like, my guess is, if you talked to senators, particularly in the GOP, most of them must fucking hate his gods, right? And just find it to be this constant annoyance, right? where like every time they're getting something going there's a guy who just sort of like every time they build a sandcastle, he's the kid that steps on it. Right. right? And there's no warning. There's no anything. It's just shocking. It's like, ah, uh, okay. I believe that Nancy Pelosi is enough of an insider, you know, and that these people do talk to each other, even though they, there's this pretense that they don't, that she is aware of that sentiment. And maybe she's making a bet on that, right. That, If you give people the opportunity to do this, maybe they'll actually do it because they can see something better on the other side. And the thing that weirds me out is like, what is that something better? It's like Pence as president. And the thing about that is I, if it were me, as far as I know, and I could be wrong, there's only been one other moment in American history where the American people have been given the opportunity of having three presidents in a calendar year, which would have been after Kennedy was assassinated. They didn't go that way. And I think the danger with getting Pence there is like Pence is the anti-Trump. This is the thing that he's been selling from the beginning of the presidency right where he's like i'm the guy who's aloof i'm the courteous gentle christian man who won't eat with women i am not trump i really worry (laughs) that if you get him into the presidency he might actually be able to get elected as president in the in the the chaos leading up you know like His appeal, fundamentally, I think the appeal of someone like Elizabeth Warren, who, by the way, probably should just be president forever, right? Like if we (laughs) lived in a fair world, (laughs) Elizabeth Warren would just, I would be fine with Elizabeth Warren being president forever and like slowly being corrupted by power. (laughs) It would be fine. Right. Um, But her appeal, which I have to say, I didn't see coming and I didn't understand Is like she's an adult in a way that maybe the other Democratic candidates don't seem like. Where it's like, I'm competent, I'm going to be boring on policy, I'm not going to react to Trump, I'm just going to go, I'm going to do the one thing that you haven't seen in these three years I'm going to do my fucking job, right? I didn't see that coming. I thought Kamala Harris had a much better argument, although she never actually made it, which is part of the thing. I thought that her argument, the argument if I were Kamala Harris would be, you have lived in chaos. I am a cop. I know about order. I can bring order to this chaos. But she, for a variety of reasons, has never actually made that argument. She's done the worst thing you could, which is sort of make it and then track it back. And then not like you, I don't think that that level of retail politics, you can be anything except what you are. And when you try not to be what you are, that's when everything goes to hell. Um, But I mean, I can see Pence making the same argument as Warren, you know, like if he's the guy who ends up as president, if he runs as the Republican candidate in 2020, His argument is very similar to hers. I'm a quiet, affable, diminutive person. I'm concerned about policy. I'm not Trump. I am. It's pretty hard to disentangle him from Trump at this point, though. I don't think he needs to do it for people like us. Yeah, that would be my that would be my best. He's up to his neck in this in this uh, quid pro quo thing too. He is, but he. But you know, like the way that things these things get driven is always by perception. Right. And like Trump would not be, this is my sense. Like Trump would not be in the problem. If he had done the exact same thing that he had done in that phone call, Trump would not be in the situation he is in. If there wasn't this perception preceding him, which he, you know, frankly cultivates and loves. But like, if everyone didn't assume on some level that Trump was the most corrupt man they'd ever seen this would not we would not be where we are and i and i think pence is like i don't see him having that stain of corruption he is a guy who even if he is corrupt i don't know he's, he's a, corrupt i i mean he is <laughs> but you know what i mean like i don't know enough about him but at the same time that's a guy who is really pretty much made a wall in perception between him and trump and like i don't know i don't think people are going to be really i mean there's a really sizable portion of the country that is going to be incredibly fucking pissed off if trump is removed from office even if he had shot someone there's a sizable portion of the country it gives me a really bad feeling now that being said if it's November, whatever, 2020, and we end up with an Elizabeth Warren presidency or any democratic presidency, any kind of change from whatever this is, I'm happy. Me too. You know, I'm happy, but I have a, I don't know. I have a very weird feeling about all of this. It feels like
0: it's teetering. It's going to go. It's like if we, it either goes good or it goes terribly bad.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I, truth be told, I am a person who always assumes it'll go terribly bad. (laughs) So, well, yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't know what's going to happen. That's why I always ask people, but it does feel like we're getting towards some kind of end game or inflection point or decisive moment Um, because it's pretty cut and dry. Like you can't solicit foreign governments to attack your, investigate your opponent in a political election. You can't do that. I,
1: I can't disagree. I mean, but I don't know. Do those standards apply anymore? They should. They should. Yeah. But it's, I mean, this is a thing. This is what the book is about fundamentally at its level, At, at the most basic level is this idea that the election of Trump has thrown us into a totally uncharted territory. No doubt. And that things that we used to assume, maybe we shouldn't be assuming. I mean, that doesn't mean you don't push for those things and that you don't advocate for those things, but- reality is kind of a consensus right at least at that level and it's like maybe people maybe there's really enough people in the gop who don't care about good governance that this doesn't matter you know and that's weird i mean that's that's you know and i think ultimately that actually is what the book is an attempt to sort of get at which is like i don't know if it has any particularly interesting answers, but it is an attempt to sort of plumb the experience of being in that, of this new kind of morally nebulous world where, you know, a reality TV candidate is the president. Now, that being said, it's not a Trump book because I really did not want to contribute another Trump tome. Right. Like, cause I think the right way sad and like, it's too late now, but probably the right way to have dealt with Trump all along, just be ignore him. Right. Well, good know. luck. Yeah. To, exactly. to
0: Talk about media conglomerates. Yeah, exactly. You know, basically like, using the guy to line their pockets yeah, at the yeah, expense yeah. of the country.
1: Ignore Trump. Like, he could have been effectively handled. I don't, that being said, it was a new kind of challenge. So, but anyway, I don't know. It's like, it's about trying to find away through the maze of what it means to be american in a particularly complicated and convoluted time to know? say the least yeah to say the least well uh congratulations thank you
0: it's always good to talk to you
1: yeah no it's it's this is i mostly hate book promotion coming into your weird converted garages is, <laughs> is actually very pleasant
0: Well, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's always an achievement to write and publish any book. I I believe that like, it's hard, it's hard labor. Um, and you, I think have like, I mean, I I don't want to reduce it to a formula, but I think whatever track you're on, like pay attention, like everybody should do this, but I feel like it specifically seems to apply to you is to like, follow your own instincts. Your instincts are good
1: yeah we'll see. I mean one of the things that is really true is is and this is I think one of the reasons why the future won't be long went so haywire is that it wasn't following my sense of it of like where it should go, and I lost control of the process and I mean that sounds slightly egomaniacal, but I did. You know, and this one I've had total control, so I guess we'll see. It's all on you. Yeah. No, I'm the one to blame. (laughs) I've always been the one to blame, but with this one especially, I think I'll take the blame. All right. Well, best of luck. Thanks a lot. Okay, that is Jared Kobach. There he is, folks.
0: His new novel is called uh, Only Americans Burn in Hell. It's available from We Heard You Like Books. He doesn't really have an internet presence. He hates the internet. So you can maybe track him down on Twitter. He has a, a an account that I don't think he does much with. It's at Jarrett Kobeck. You can also visit the uh, We Heard You Like Books website, weheardyoulikebooks.com. Again, the novel is called Only Americans Burn in Hell. Go get your copy. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the program. If you would like to uh, write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. You can tell me a story. You can tell me how you feel. You can do both. You can write me a poem. If you would like to support this program... Uh, everything's free all episodes of this show are free more than 600 episodes it's all free uh, so it's uh, you know listeners pitch in if you want to do that you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod there's another people app too this program has its own official app that too is free it's the other people with brad listy app go get it wherever you uh, get apps So, quite a ride for uh, Jarrett Kobeck these past few years. I think we'll be hearing more from him. That's just my uh, prediction. So, up next uh, on the podcast, next episode is a conversation I had with Steph Cha. She's got a new novel out that has been uh, getting a lot of buzz. I think it got like a royal flush of starred reviews coming out of the gates. It's called Your House Will Pay, and I had a great talk with her, so stay tuned for Steph Cha. All right, I gotta go inside and deal with my children. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs>